Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, my new sworn enemy, Trader Joe's. <laughs> Can I ask why? Well, who are you first? <laughs> <laughs> I hate the way they handle checkout. Why does it take up one half of your store? And why does it always take me an hour to go through it? <laughs> and why is someone ringing a bell at me? You can take all this out of the episode. I just got to get it off my chest. No, no, I'm leaving it in. I think this is this is this needs to be said, and you're brave for for launching this broadside against Trader Joe's. You're right. I am brave. <laughs> uh, well, uh, in addition to this brave soul on our podcast, I'm Cameron Lalana, and uh, this week I'm uh, because of a new job, half living at my mom's house and half living at my apartment, uh, and I forgot to bring all of the equipment back to my apartment for this podcast so i have no idea what i sound like right now so it's gonna be really exciting when i edit this really looking forward to it it's gonna be a good time for you yeah it's gonna be, i'm gonna love it this is a podcast where me and my good pal cameron get to unwind from our weeks with some russian literature and a drink or two this week as you are well aware by now we are continuing our summer of anna karenina series with part six Personally, I don't want to say my favorite part because they're all my favorite part in a way, but this is a good one. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it with you. After so many parts of nothing, I, I'm excited to, well, I'm excited about many things about this part, but I'm especially excited to yell about the endless snipe hunting scene. Guy's gotta, gotta hunt some snipe, you know what I mean? <laughs> Sometimes a guy just has to hunt some snipe for 60 straight pages. <laughs> Tolstoy says, shut up, you're reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on, on this week of snipe hunting, we are eternally grateful <laughs> to our newest patron, Allison. Uh, thank you so much for supporting the show. And if you are interested, like Allison, in continuing to support the show, if you've enjoyed the series, for instance, go ahead and take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We have a lot of really fun Patreon-only things, like bonus episodes and notes from each story that we read. Uh, it's the biggest thing that you could do to help the show out if you're enjoying it. But if you're not interested in supporting us financially and would like to support us in a more free way, you can, of course, leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, yes, updates. But before we get into the reading today, Matt, what are you drinking? They said it couldn't be done. They <laughs> said I couldn't do it. They said, oh, he's always going to bring a Jack and Coke onto the show. No, no, no. This week, I actually... The one good thing that Trader Joe's gave me today uh, was was this beer. It's called Ninja vs. Unicorn by Pipeworks Brewing here in Chicago. And it is the coolest label I've ever seen in my life. If you turn, like the cans have, I don't know how to describe it on audio, but they have a ninja on one side and a unicorn on the other. And when you turn the label, the like labels go into each other. It's so makes it so worth paying double digit amounts of dollars for four beers. I'm a simple man. I need simple things. <laughs> what are you drinking? I well, I'm completing the the arc of only one of us can have a a good drink at a time. And um, I, since I just came home last night for the first time in a while for my job, uh, my roommates and I tried to speed run Minecraft. Uh, and so we've got a lot of Modellos left over. So what I am drinking is uh, three Modellos lined up in my desk right now. Ooh, it's fine. So every time Levin fails to, to shoot a snipe, I'm just going to pound one. Yeah, exactly. Every time he's emasculated over a snipe. All right, let's do it. <laughs> let's talk about the snipes. Uh, yes. So let's get right into this story, because in part five, we had many, many things happening. We had just a whole book's worth of plot in one part. 
And in part six, we still do have a lot of plot, a lot of really interesting things happening. However, uh, before we get to that, there's like <laughs> so much snipe. Okay, so they're, they're mm -hmm. all right. Well, let's before we talk about snipe hunting, which has been the bane of my existence for <laughs> the entirety of this part. Let's talk about what's, what's been happening. So once again, as so happens, as so often happens at the beginning of these parts, we rejoin our characters as they are somewhat lounging over the course of the summer. And in this case, we join uh, Dolly and her kids as she's hanging out at uh, Levin and Kitty's house in, in, the, in the countryside. Along with them is also Kitty and, and Dolly's mother, uh, the princess as well as Varenka, who returns, I'm, which I'm excited about. You got your wish. Uh, she should have been there. Yeah, I got, got my wish. She should have been at the wedding, but that's okay. I will accept. I will accept this. That was a big snub. <laughs> a huge huge snub. snub. Tolstoy had complete control over this. They had control over the infights. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they could have and should have invited Varenka, but she's here now. That's the important thing. Levin's brother, Sergei Ivanovich, is also, well, half-brother, really, has also joined them. So it's a big, exciting time. Levin's not... Levin likes it, but he's also, because he's Levin, not entirely satisfied with it because he's also thinking about how much work he could be getting done that he's not because he's got like a, a full family house and is, is sometimes complaining about, you know, the Sherbatskaya element, uh, which has been brought in by, by all the Sherbatsky women, you know, joining them, which on one hand, I, I am somewhat sympathetic to having your, your space invaded and, and for a, a whole summer. On the other hand, what he, he holds up as, you know, instead instead of having like empty rooms and no one but me and Agafia hanging around, I've got people who want to talk to me. Um, you're really um, suffering from success there, my guy, Levin. <laughs> yeah, he's a little bit brooding in the intro to this to this yeah. part, which is fun. He's a little bit brooding in this entire part. <laughs> yeah, really most of the book anyways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so everyone's hanging about and everyone's talking about various things. Uh, Sergei Ivanovich and I Ivanka, Ivanka, <laughs> Arenka, <laughs> <laughs> and Varenka seem to be having a, a thing, and Sergei Ivanovich invites her out to mushroom gather, which is always a or it's always been a Slavic thing, which I've been interested about. But uh, I'm I'm now coming to, to think that perhaps it is just an age old uh, excuse to be alone with someone else, which makes a lot of sense to me. I don't like mushrooms, but I aesthetically like mushroom gathering. It it looks nice, seems nice. <laughs> It seems nice to drink a uh, half a bottle of vodka and then just go wander out in a field with an excuse to be out there. Yeah, it seems fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so well through this, everyone's chatting, people are comparing their experiences, and, and Kitty is really excited for the idea of Varenka and Sergei getting married because they, they seem to have their moments, they want to be alone together, and even... This isn't just uh, something of her... This isn't just her imagination. Sergei and Varenka both feel something, and this is comes to kind of a peak when they are out mushroom gathering and they will feel that this moment is, uh, is is never going to be the same if they don't immediately get married which is a terrifying thought that they've literally just met each other and at the first sign of infatuation they're like time to get married but that's just my personal bias i get at the time this is normal but still what a terrifying time to be alive <laughs> we both looked at the same mushroom it's time to go <laughs> Yes, but uh, unfortunately for both of them, uh, Sergei is in fact Levin's brother and overthinks the entire thing. And when he sits down and they're both like, it's it's time, it's time for him to propose, he instead asks, asks her about mushrooms and the, the spell is broken. Hey, you like mushrooms? 
<laughs> and, and knowing that because Sergei has asked about mushrooms, this can never happen, which it makes sense. Um, they, they walk off <laughs> somewhat, somewhat uh, sad about the fact that they will never now be married because they're the only moment they ever will ever have has been ruined. Ever. Ever. Following this series of events, uh, Steva is supposed to arrive, and he's supposed to arrive with uh, the prince, with Kitty and Dolly's father. However, when he actually does roll up, he instead brings an absolute unit, Vasenka. Why am I introducing him as an absolute unit? Because every time Tolstoy ever mentions him eating, it's always like eating entire animals, but more than one. At one time at lunch, later on, he just eats several chickens. I, I just... If I had a dime for every time in Russian literature I read about someone who just like ate entire pastures every single lunchtime, I would have two dimes, which isn't a lot, but <laughs> it's weird that it happened twice. But it's like, it's more dimes than I thought I'd have in my wallet. Yeah. So the, the arrival of Vasenka instead of the prince really depresses Levin because Levin's, he likes the prince. He likes his father-in-law. And in the moment when everyone comes out to greet Steva and the prince, he is just, he's pissed. He's mad that everyone's treating Vasenka kindly. He's mad that people are treating Steva kindly. When when Steva kisses his wife, uh, Levin somewhat darkly thinks, uh, whose lips were you th kissing yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> Which is true and a fair thought to have, but I, I mean, at a certain point, you got to stop enabling your friend's behavior. <laughs> And it gets worse because Vasenka, he's, he's a bit flirtatious, and he's especially flirtatious with Kitty. Kitty is not very receptive about it, but that doesn't matter to Levin. Levin is just, as they have dinner together the next night, just pissed that Vasenka is hanging out with Kitty and kind of shooting her looks. And even though she's obviously not receptive, he begins to imagine a reality where she's falling in love with him, which, to be fair, if I saw a man who could, uh, you know, like eat several chickens in one meal, I would also be worried about my, about my significant other. I would be like, I could not, I, I, I don't think I could blame them if they left me for someone who's just such a unit. I mean, ladies of the podcast, what do you want? Do you want a brooding intellectual or do you want a man who can eat several chickens in one sitting? Let us know in our Discord, please. <laughs> Why would you ever settle for an intellectual when you just see a man who is just you and you just see the the spitting image of Rachmatov? I, I mean, <laughs> frankly, I think we that's something we all want down in our hearts. Big time. Everyone thinks they want they want the brooding intellectual of Levin or, you know, the kindly intuitiveness of Kitty. But really, in our hearts, we all just want the spitting image of Rachmatov. Yes. And or Vasenka. If you can't fit a five pound block of rye bread of black bread in your uh, in your pocket, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> If you can't, like Vasenka, not get on a horse because you're too big, come on, get out of here. Get out of here. Come on. <laughs> but the, this in, this issue becomes quickly resolved when, when Levin and Kitty talk things out and, and instantly come to a conclusion. I, I'm actually, I, I got to confess to you, I don't entirely understand why Levin instantly becomes not mad with her after she explains things to him, which are, isn't actually covered. I, I don't know if you understood that part or if I, I've just missed something. I think he's just, I think he's just upset to have upset her. Okay. All I, right. I think well. for the first time, well, maybe not the first time, but in this instance, he's realizing that his actions do, as a matter of fact, impact other people. <laughs> <laughs> something new for Levin. All right, that's fair. Following that, uh, he decides that perhaps uh, the... That the snipe hunt that Steva and Vasenka invited me out to won't be so bad. So he goes out with them to, to hunt snipe. And I could go over the ins and outs of their days hunting snipe, but I'm not going to because it's so long. 
It's so long. It's it's basically the the short version is Vasenka is not a very good sportsman. He keeps throwing off Levin's aim. He accidentally shoots a gun next to Levin's head, and he drives the horses for their carriage into them into a ma into the moss or into a a marsh. He's just not a very good person to be hunting with, and most infuriatingly to Levin, Vasenka does not seem to affected by this whatsoever. <laughs> He's just blindly going about his life, having a good time accidentally shooting guns almost at his friends <laughs> riding their horses into the mud to the mud he's really a 19th century frat boy that's what tolstoy has written here he really is um and to make up for the fact that he drove the horses into the mud and didn't help with getting them out because he didn't know how to he then insists on on taking pushing the man who they have they hire specifically to drive the carriage out of his seat so he can drive the carriage again to make up for it mm -hmm. which doesn't entirely un i don't entirely understand that and how you come around to l let me make up for crashing your carriage by driving your carriage for you again in the same day but I guess we can't all be as, as based as Vasenka is. <laughs> That's because you're not a hunting god. You wouldn't understand it. <laughs> so this, this continues. And at the end of the day, they find some peasants to hang out with. And Vasenka disappears early in the day to go drink with them. But by the end, they all come in. They find a place to sleep. They're in the barn. And they all get set up to go. And they all lay down in some hay. And they begin talking. And this is really the main at least as I understand it, important part for Levin and, and to somewhat, to, to a certain extent, Steva during this entire snipe hunt. In that, uh, once again, Levin and Steva get, get into it over kind of their position in society. And Levin is once again, as he always is, is critical of, of their lifestyle, of, of their leisure, of the fact that they really don't do work and expounding on his ideas of what legitimate incomes are. And Steva comes back around to attack Levin on that, saying that he's not really entirely self-aware on that and is asking him, well, you, you know, if, if those people are not getting a, a legitimate wage, then why, how can you, who are yourself a landowner, how are you getting legitimate wages? And does actually challenge Levin. And Levin notes that there's a certain rivalry that has come up between the two since Levin has married Kitty, almost as if the fact that they're now brothers-in-law has kind of created some sort of rivalry between the two uh, about what kind of men they're going to be. And Vasenka's just hanging out in there, and he has some mild, comes to some mild revelations about his own position in society, although that does not seem to bother him, understanding that he is, <laughs> that, he, that his existence is predicated on the labor of others. What is to be done? What is to be done? Uh, yeah, Levin notes that although Vasenka seems to nail it right on the head, that he he says it like he's never really thought about it before, although he comes at it perfectly sincerely. So uh, <laughs> what is to be done indeed? But yeah, it, it all kind of comes to a head when they it gets heated enough that Vasenka kind of hops up and when he hears some women outside and says, hey, let's go party with them. And Steva, as he is wont to do, turns to Levin and says, hey, come on, let's forget all this. Let's go party. And Levin says, no, I got to go to sleep. I, you know, we really shouldn't be doing this anyway. And Steva chides him and says, you know, I know that getting away is hard for you. You feel like you should be at Kitty's beck and call. Well, you know, you've got to be a man, Levin, and you've got to be more masculine and a man needs his independence and all these things. And then he leaves and Levin begins to think maybe Steva's right, which if anyone should know not to take marriage advice from Steva, it should be Levin. It 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 should be Levin. Well, how about I raise you. Don't take any advice from Steva about anything. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah. Any, no, no, no advice. No advice about anything, but especially advice about marriage from Steva, from the man who knows most intimately about all of his affairs and is the one that has to pick up the pieces for Steva. You of all people should know not to listen to him. Also, as he's about to go cheat on his wife once again with some random girl from one of these villages. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's yelling at Levin about having having masculine independence while he's about to go cheat on his wife. <laughs> That's on, literally on his way out the door, like 30 steps out from it. The next morning, as Levin wakes up, he goes to hunt by himself, and perhaps as as he's separated from his worldly, let's call them temptations, from the of the other two, <laughs> as they try to pull him down, he ends up having a really good day hunting snipe, and between around 6 a.m., it doesn't exactly say when he gets up, although it's before the sun comes up, between 6 and 10, he manages to hunt 19 snipe, which is a really good, just an incredible amount of, of birds to kill in like four hours, so he's... He's feeling great. I mean, if you're one of the few people who doesn't know anything about snipe hunting for whatever reason, that's a, I mean, that's a pretty good haul, I think. Yeah. To put in your snipe bag. I mean, it's ridiculous to think you wouldn't know anything about snipe hunting, but I guess if you somehow don't, <laughs> you should know that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of snipes. <laughs> and so at this point, they all begin to return to to Levin's estate. And once again, they all have a good time. And, and Levin begins to chat with Dolly because... Even though he, he thinks he's gotten over his jealousy with uh, Vasenka, uh, once again, the moment Vasenka and Kitty are back together, he feels bad again, and the same temptations to be jealous and to be angry keep coming back up. And he goes to, to Dolly to try to get those feelings out. And they, they, you know, they chat about things because Levin's been teaching Dolly's kids as, as he's wont to do. Of course, he's never going to leave their, not going to leave their education to someone else, like a paid tutor. That would be silly preposterous uh, and, and as dolly confirms to him that even she feels like fasenka's behavior is a little bit untoward he decides it's time i gotta go kick him out <laughs> he just walks right into fasenka's room as fasenka's hanging out and tells him hey man i got a carriage ready for you you gotta go <laughs> and Vasenka's understandably somewhat confused and as he begins to leave steva is kind of pissed because if there's one thing that can that that's wrong in Steve's handbook, and this is perhaps the only thing that's wrong in Steve's handbook, it's it's <laughs> cutting a good time short. Yeah, take your snipe, take like four hundred of my chicken for the road, and get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so he kicks it out and makes things a little bit awkward. Dolly, at this point, decides it's time to go see Anna, who is staying not too far away, just even less than a day's travel. Um, and she goes to see Anna, who is with Vronsky, who's uh, now at this point being visited by a Princess Varvaria, who is a, a relation of, of Anna's with Sviazhki, who we met earlier in part three when Levin went to go see him and talk about land things, as well as another guy who I, I know exists, but he doesn't actually matter. So we're going <laughs> to go over We're going we're to skip over his existence. And, and Dolly is, is not seen Anna in a long time. So when she first arrives, she's kind of awestruck at the really the the like amazing wealth that Anna lives in. Because although Dolly herself is a wealthy person, we got to keep in mind that Steve is spending all that money on on clams and oysters. So she's like trying to get every single ruble she can just to get clothes in her kids. Can we talk about what a baller move it is for Dolly to go visit Anna though. Staying like I guess no one has really been. I mean, Kitty was slighted 
by Anna. But no, like no one else necessarily really was. But just I just imagine like the tension must have been so thick. Yeah. On the way over, Dolly thinks I was probably wrong to listen to Anna. I mean, at this point, understandably, she's pretty deep and she's like imagining other lives for herself and other men she could have pursued if she'd just. Oh, we'll talk about it. Oh, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Oh, we'll get into that. Yeah. So she, um, <clears throat> yeah, she, she thinks she at this point knows that she did the wrong thing in listening to Anna. So she tries to go see her friend. And Anna and Vronsky's house is just amazing. It's built in the English style. They have just the newest everything. Anna Jr.'s nursery is got all the latest tech. <laughs> Anna Jr.? <laughs> well, what do you, what would you call her? I would also just call her Anna for confusion's sake. <laughs> That's fair. I, I'll give that one to you. Although Dolly wants to see the best in her friend, she feels somewhat alienated by Anna uh, Anna is still herself, really, but she's also kind of adapted to these new environments. I mean, as as Dolly walks into Anna's new environment, she notes that even the maids look better than than Dolly does. They've got <laughs> newer hairstyles, better clothing than she does. And and no matter how much she talks to Anna, she can't help but feel like a certain distance between the two of them. Like there's just something they don't understand about each other anymore. As they're hanging out, at one point, Fronsky pulls. Dolly aside and asks to to go for a walk with her up by themselves. And as they're walking, Dolly has kind of become somewhat infatuated with Vronsky at this point. I, I mean, he's still kind of a charming guy. He's obviously very caring on his estate. He's personally overseeing, along with Anna, the the construction of hospitals, of schools, and and Dolly uh, is kind of, I mean. It seems to be into a guy who who cares whatsoever <laughs> instead of, um, you know, her, her lived reality of, of a husband who doesn't care whatsoever. So she's kind of like, what what does he want? This is kind of causing some anxiety. And Vronsky sits her down and says, hey, I can't talk Anna into getting a divorce from Alexei Karenin. And that's a problem because if I have kids, they're, they're all legally Karenin's kids. So I don't have any kids to pass on my stuff to. Once I die, I've this, this land will, you know, we can't really pass it on. I've got no kids legally, uh, even though biologically, obviously I do. Um, and I can't even bring up this topic with Anna because she just shuts me down. Can you please talk to her and, and see if you can get her to, to talk to Karenin and, and obtain that divorce? And, and Dolly says, yeah, maybe. Following that, Anna is obviously interested in what Dolly and Vronsky chatted about. So as, as Dolly is kind of getting ready to go, she sits down with Anna and says to her, you, know, you really should start to consider that that divorce, perhaps, because you're kind of living, you know, you're not really living the life of being married to Alexei Karenin. And Anna looks at her and kind of says, well, I, Karenin is not going to divorce me. Now that he's fallen under Countess Ivanovna's influence, he's not going to grant me that divorce. He knows exactly what that means, and that's going to free me. And he's becoming increasingly vindictive, essentially. And, you know, of course, if I divorce him, I'll lose rights to Suryoja forever. So now I'm kind of stuck in this reality where either I have to choose Alexei uh, Vronsky or I have to choose my son, Suryoja. Now, that being said, um, <clears throat> Tolstoy is also, uh, during this part, kind of picking fun at her as she shows off Anna Jr. to Dolly and uh, doesn't even know how many teeth that her daughter has. Which, on one hand, I don't think is that unusual, but uh, Tolstoy certainly seems to think that that's... Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if you would count your kids' teeth, but maybe you would. I, I don't have any kids. I've never thought about that aspect of, of parenthood. Think about it right now. <laughs> I mean, well, if you if you saw if you saw your significant other 
with you when you had a child counting your child's teeth. How would you approach that? I would think there was like a Hansel and Gretel situation going on <laughs> in your <laughs> living room. <laughs> oh, like what? Like there's going to be a trail of, of breadcrumbs except his teeth? Like they're counting on how far they can get into the forest? No, no, no. I think, I think I'm living in the forest house. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's fair. That makes sense. But also... um, as as Dolly says to her, you know, you can't, uh, your, your future kids won't be Vronsky's. Anna says to to Dolly, oh, you know what, I actually can't have any more kids. And this is becoming, this is a huge point of shock to Dolly. And she thinks more about the process of having kids and, uh, you know, what that's meant for her in her own life. And, you know, what that will mean for Anna and Vronsky's relations when he understands that she cannot have any more children. Just 19th century Russian things. You know. I can't tell if in this sense... I mean, I know it's Tolstoy writing it. I don't know if childbirth is supposed to be a good thing because on one hand, it seems to be the thing that is implied is holding them together. But on the other hand, it also is the thing that makes Dolly feel old and like she's just just around. She's only kept around so she can raise children. So I, I, we'll get into that. Well, I think it's a turning point because I think War and Peace was the last family, the best family oriented, the last family fun Tolstoy book, uh, if you will. <laughs> Uh, this one, yeah. his attitudes towards family are already changing after his many crises. So I think it depends on the situation. That's fair. Yeah. So after that, Dolly takes off. She can't be there for super long. She does not feel entirely comfortable in that setting. At this point, we continue on with Dolly, or Dolly with Fronsky and Anna's perspective. And it, it's not entirely great for them. I mean, they seem to have good rapport. But every time uh, Vronsky goes off to do, so, do something on his own, Anna gets a little bit jealous, probably because she can't. Also, she can't do anything on her own. And so Vronsky leaving her behind uh, probably does uh, somewhat rightly feel like he's abandoning her. But elections are coming up. And Vronsky is, is trying to acquire seats on a council. And he is he, he's raring to go. And there is a huge party election coming up, which he feels obliged to go to because he's been supported by Svyashki. So he needs to go and support the, the new party as opposed to the old party. Uh, to which uh, is something that Levin also decides to go to against all of his better instincts uh accompanied by steva and sviashki and all the others who we've been hanging out with so far and they all get together in this big conference room and uh well it's it's a political convention essentially it's a <laughs> somewhat dirty election of people trying to get the contestants drunk contestants uh the people running for office drunk contestants. they may as well be contestants yeah it, basically it's contestants that's that's how tolstoy's portraying this it's like roughly a modern political convention it's it's a very down and dirty the new and the old just trying to overcome the other however they can playing games of politics uh levin does not feel good about it uh, but uh, eventually the the supporters of the new politics the new party managed to push their their vote through and and get elected and Vronsky is is feeling satisfied at his position he feels like yeah I, i'm you know i'm really getting into my new life i like being kind of a patriarch of this county um, seat. And, and he's also the side point balding. I don't know if that's supposed to also be a parallel with Karenin, that he's starting to look older and more baldy, but he is. That's just a side note. <clears throat> Which is all interrupted when he gets a letter from Anna telling him that their daughter is very ill. And it, the whole letter is kind of aggressive. And he goes home feeling somewhat worried. We finish this part by going back to Anna's perspective as he has left her alone and in the days where he's at the political convention she is 
uncertain. She she's feeling her emotions are all over the place. She she couldn't tell like what exactly does Vronsky feel for me. She at uh, some points it feels sure that her uh, that his love for her is waning and there's nothing that she can do. But whenever he comes back in to be his old charming self, she feels like no, that can't be right. In the absence of him reassuring her, she really begins to be a bit more a bit more jealous and a bit more angry at Vronsky about the whole thing, whatever that thing is at that given time. Uh, but it's just kind of the back and forth that, that is beginning to emerge constantly between the two, which is their constant now of what their new life is like. The two of them decide, let's go to Moscow. We, we, Vronsky, although he wants to go by himself to deal with things there, she says, hey, you can't leave me behind. If, if you're going to go somewhere, I'm going to go somewhere. We're, this is a, I, either uh, we must separate or we must live together. And deciding to go, that in fact, they're going to go together. She decides to still to start petitioning her husband to see if she can, in fact, get that divorce. Get that divorce, girl. Yeah, get that divorce. Divorce girl summer is what divorce girl. turning into. <laughs> yeah, we first we had the, you know, hot girl summer of uh, the beginning of the affair. And now that we are, are one to two years in, it's now time for divorce girl summer. That's right. So less happened in that part than in chapter five. But that's understandable because an incredible amount happened. Uh, but still a good amount to look at here. So um, you, you had a couple things you said you want to talk about. Let's, let's get into that. Let's because I think that I like the snipe hunts because I like when Tolstoy doesn't give you what you want because it's fun uh, <laughs> for me to watch you this time have to read it for the first time. Be like, why is it 60 pages of a snipe hunt? Because <laughs> that's life, baby. Not every single thing that happens is important. And that's what's so fun because people read it and they're like, ah, yes, one of the greatest novels ever written. Surely I must just, I must just slurp every word. No, sometimes you're going to get 60 pages of a snipe hunt. And yeah, you can read into them and you can, you know, there's, there's stuff there. But is it the most important thing? My God, no. <laughs> that's not what I want to talk about, even though I do enjoy the snipe hunt. I think I agree with you. There's so many parts where I start to like, maybe because I've read some of these books where it's like it's setting up like, oh, something's going to happen. Like he'll introduce talking about for like a full five pages, the tension and Vasenka not having very good trigger discipline and kind of pointing the gun all over the place. And you're like, oh, something's going to happen with the guns. And then Vasenka just shoots his gun into the ground and nothing happens with that. And he moves on. Yep, yep. <laughs> He's just kind of like playing around with tropes of, of, of course, something could have gone wrong and that's not unrealistic. But in this case, <laughs> well, it was so frustrating for some mostly Western critics when it came out mm. because they just didn't really get it because uh, it doesn't I don't know it is technically a novel but it doesn't really conform to your standard expectation of it which is it's fun it's fun it's fun but I wanted to talk about the Dolly and Anna scene because I would say that's probably like the single most important scene of the whole book perhaps well I won't die on that hill but it's a really important <laughs> scene <laughs> There's, there are many important scenes in this book and this yeah. is definitely one of them it's one that doesn't really get a lot of attention either. I, I don't know why. I don't know if people lose interest by part six. But first of all, like I mentioned, for Dolly to even go see Anna, who is completely disgraced in society at this point, like it's just not something that people did or would have done. So that's like already like extraordinary for her to set aside her like, position in society or societal considerations to go and visit her just because she wants to. People didn't do things because they wanted to do them. They did them because they had to or it was what was expected of them for the most part. Uh, and, mm. that, you know, that's why Anna kind of has all of these like kind of random relations and acquaintances visiting uh, is because kind of still an outcast definitely by this point and so yeah i'm gonna link in a couple things here uh, there's 
this line that is probably, I mean, I've underlined it several, I've underlined it every time I go through. It is Dolly thinking to herself, and you mentioned this as she's going in her carriage to Anna's place. And the line is, Anna did quite right. And certainly I will never reproach her for it. She's happy. She makes another person happy. And she's not as broken down as I am. But most likely, just as she always was. Bright, clever, open to every impression, thought Daria Alexandrovna. And a sly smile curved on her lips. Because as she pondered Anna's love affair, Daria Alexandrovna constructed unparalleled lines an almost identical love affair for herself with an imaginary composite figure, the ideal man who was in love with her. And it's, well, first I snicker because of course that's the only characteristic that she requires is like someone just to like her a little bit uh compared to her, her husband oh boy oh yeah. boy steva and so i wanted to talk about the parallel plot lines and plot lines because we got a question in our discord thank you to darren one of our patrons for dropping this question about the plot lines Darren was asking, how do they connect? What am I supposed to be seeing with this? And so I wanted to read a paragraph from one of my favorite books, secondary sources on Anna Karenina, because I won't make everybody go read the book. Uh, I don't have that kind of power, but if I did, that's what I would use it for. Uh, it is from Lisa Knapp's book. She's a professor of Slavic studies at Columbia, and she wrote this really fantastic book called Anna Karenina and Others, Tolstoy's Labyrinth of Plots. And her goal is largely to figure out why does Tolstoy have all of these plots? What is he doing? And she does a lot of, you know, interesting um, comparative readings and whatnot with other books. But there's this, this kind of part of her introduction that I'll read. It's a little bit lengthy, but it is, to me, it is like, it, this was when I was like, I read this, I was like, all right, you know what? I kind of understand Tolstoy a little bit more now, which is a feat for understanding Tolstoy. And so this paragraph goes, Anna Karenina appears to celebrate the family idea, which, according to his wife's testimony, Tolstoy considered to be the main basic idea that holds the novel together. Ultimately, however, Tolstoy was not just interested in the relations of lovers or family members, but really occupied Tolstoy's heart and mind as he wrote Anna Karenina were questions of faith in God and loving one's neighbor. As Tolstoy quipped in his later commentary on the Gospels, the call to love your neighbor is meaningless if you don't know who your neighbor is. So, <laughs> it sounds kind of complex, but the reason that Anna Karenina, in my mind, remains relevant and the reason that there are so many plots is because you're supposed to be looking at how your life connects to other people's lives. And, well, you're supposed to be looking at the characters in the book and kind of pondering it yourself in the back of your mind. You're trying to figure out, like, how do your actions impact other people? That's why Steve is such a terrible, terrible character, because his <laughs> actions have such a bad impact on the people closest to him, despite what his what people that are further away from him in society see him as being. And so to bring this back, the fact that Dolly is going to visit Anna, who like totally gaslit her when she was trying to <laughs> uh, divorce or get away from uh, Anna's brother and the fact that she still holds her in such high regard is like, oh my goodness. Uh, it's just it's just a lot. So this is one of the few moments where you really get some kind of... You, you basically get the conclusion of their plot lines that started at the beginning of the opening of the book. You, you get an interesting thing. You get to see how does, it, how does this end because they did... I mean, because Anna was in exactly more or less the same spot and she chose to do something different, the exact thing that she told Tali not to do. So you get to see, did it work out 
is Anna happy? And I don't know. But did, well, how did you? Because I feel a particular way, so I don't know how you were on just a, a fresh, a fresh pair of eyes reading it. Well, I think one of the interesting things on that point, when Daria or sorry, Dolly is thinking about the idea of family, and she feels tired because she's kind of been treated as like her her role for for Steve has just been as a as a mother, as a childbearer. And she kind of is like, she's embarrassed for people to see her because it, upon seeing all of, upon seeing Anna's beauty and the fact that, you know, her house is amazing and that even, even the servants in her house look better than, than herself, uh, she starts to feel like she's living in, uh, an inferior life to Anna in, in the role she's playing. And she thinks back on a young woman she met a long time ago and uh, this woman had had a, a child who died and, Dolly is obviously horrified, and the woman kind of laughs it off and says, "Oh, you know, my like my husband has enough kids anyway. But what's one more? He didn't need another one." And that attitude kind of horrified her. But for a moment, she kind of sees, like, is it like is it that bad? Like, what what am I doing by bringing all these kids into the world? Like, am I am I like really improving? Is it better for for my kids to exist at all? I mean, she she even says, um, "Kitty, she's gotten older. She's lost her looks," which. I, I don't know if that's entirely how we should judge someone's personhood on, but to the point of the story, like the the roles that these women have been put into in like the expectations of motherhood and womanhood is something that seems to be draining to them as people. And she begins to have this thought like maybe Anna does have the better, like maybe she is doing the right thing here by pursuing something that's entirely for her. However, when she's doing that, Tolstoy is also undercutting that very thought by having at many points, Dolly questioned, is Anna really happy? And it it seems to be whenever you have a quiet moment with Anna that she's not really happy, that she's not she's not really secure in her position. And perhaps that's another parallel and that the jealousy that Anna feel is par- feels is parallel to the Levin's jealousy. But of course, we see different outcomes from, from, the, from the fates of their jealousy, which they both acknowledge is not a positive trait in them because they're, they're, they, that tendency is happening in very different environments that they've set up for themselves. It was kind of interesting. I don't know if you caught this. I'm pretty sure this is what's happening I'm, i can't remember if this was written or if this is a read between the lines thing but anna I don't, I don't think it's that anna cannot have any more children i'm pretty sure she's using the the opium and the painkillers from her previous childbirth as like contraception it doesn't say it but the implication to me was that it was something yeah. that she chose to do because she also mentions how she has to take it to go to bed at night as well yeah so yeah, so there, I feel like this is the, the, this scene was just so interesting because you know it doesn't really require you reading between the lines that much because it is just this beautiful facade that is set up as Dolly kind of drives in, and then piece by piece it gets sort of taken apart, mm. and you see that well what Anna wanted wasn't really that good either. It didn't really it hasn't really it hasn't ended that well. I mean it's not hasn't ended yet. But it's not what Dolly would think either. And it really is kind of ultimately mm. upsetting to her. That's why she ends up leaving like several days earlier than she planned. Right. Yeah, because as she's leaving, she's speaking to the um, the two people that had brought her there that uh, of Levin's, and Levin's employee. And they kind of say to her, oh, we didn't really like this place. It's kind of dreary. I mean, the, the master of Ronsky, he's very closed fisted. He's not, he didn't really give us that many bushels of grain. And, and, you know, considering how cheap grain is right now, there's no reason to be that tight fisted unless you really just don't want to give things out. And, you know, they say it's really just didn't, it just didn't feel right. What do you think? And Dolly kind of looks back and says, you know what? I thought so too. And then immediately turns her thoughts towards home, mm-hmm. ending those, ending her con- um, 
contemplations on Anna and Vronsky for the most part. Yeah, it was interesting because when Anna like first is talking to Dolly, she says that something magical has happened to me, like a dream. When you wake up and all the horrors are no more, I've woken up. And this is such a fascinating a thing to me, like the dissonance that exists in Anna at this moment. I'm drawing from a book that I just want to cherry, <laughs> cherry pick uh, one quote from. It's called Ethics Theory in the Novel. And it's in a chapter about Anna Karenina, about forgetfulness and disorientation and how those kind of play on the moral themes of Anna Karenina, which is very fascinating. And David Parker says the ethical fullness of Anna Karenina depends on the fact that it embraces no final vocabulary of human worth, no set of no final set of evaluative distinctions, either of a moral or of an anti-moral kind. And I think that this does a really like this is a really good part to kind of look at Tolstoy's larger project because he gives you these parallel plot lines of the two women that have chosen just like very different things. And you would expect towards the end of the book that this freaking guy is going to give you some answer to this giant <laughs> thing that you've been slogging through. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Like, he doesn't really say one is better than the other. He shows you that everyone's kind of unhappy in their own way in this situation. And you're kind of like, well, why did I read these stupid plot lines? Then? <laughs> and it's yeah. like, yeah. And so I just think that the opium is a really good like motif in this section to kind of actually show that dreamlike forgetfulness and disorientation that Anna experiences. And she's actually like experiencing it so much that she thinks that she has fully woken up well how can you be fully awake if all the things that were bothering you there aren't you know aren't there anymore um so it's just an interesting piece that i liked yeah i i like that point about the the inconclusiveness of this morality because actually i want to amend my earlier statement about dolly not thinking about it anymore once she leaves her final thought on it is that uh, she even when, when she comes back to the to levin's place she she doesn't let anyone say anything bad about them and she kind of talks about how much she admires them it says uh, speaking with perfect sincerity and forgetting the in ineffable feeling of dissatisfaction and awkwardness she had experienced there the moment and while she's there she's seeing the reality of anna's situation to a certain degree that it's kind of built on her and vronsky both looking past a lot of the kind of weirdness of their of their day-to-day but against Dolly's own life, which itself is, is tenuous. I mean, she's staying with Kitty and Levin because they can accept visitors. But later on in the book, she she wonders on when when they have, you know, when, when Kitty delivers her child, I'm going to have to go back to my own life. And, you know, if Steva is paying even less attention to us. I don't even know where my money is going to come from. I'm not certain, you know, like, what can I do for my kids? Can I even get them into schools? Can we afford schools? Her own life is itself so uh, undesirable that she, the moment she leaves their presence, she instantly forgets everything that that seemed awkward about it to her, and, and it becomes instantly desirable again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, basically all of the characters do it at some point in the novel. I mean, Steva, for instance, basically opens the novel waking up from uh, from a dream. Literally, yeah, it's a really it's a recurring and quite dominant feature of people in the book and people mm -hmm. in real life and so that's yeah those are two of the reasons why not that this was the point of the podcast to prove why you need to read Anna Karenina but why I think it's still <laughs> kind of an important book that's like it's really I mean yeah it is about snipe hunting and aristocrats and yada 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 but it deals with the things that are like people are still questioning 
and have mm. always questioned like very fundamental human questions of life. Right. And that's why I think it's really funny as Lisa Knapp pointed out in this paragraph, the family idea that's mentioned, uh, I, I think Tolstoy later in his life when he was asked about Anna Karenina, his response was something to the degree of, you know, Anna was bad. She got punished because she was bad. That's Anna Karenina, which would be not a great reading of Anna Karenina, I don't think. I think that would be really simplistic. And I think there's a lot more going on here. So sorry, Big T, uh, <laughs> for my disagreeing of, of why you wrote your book. <laughs> yeah, more examples that authors are perhaps not the best people to explain their own novels uh, as evidenced by, uh, well, first Ray Bradbury and now Leo Tolstoy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I really like the kind of focus on the idea of this labyrinth of plots of just like looking at parallel lives because I, I want to bring it back to I know I made a lot of fun of this earlier, but I actually think this is interesting. And I'm kind of curious to see what you thought about it. Um, the the parallel of Kitty and Levin's relationship with uh, Sergei and Varenka's because they, they both Sergei Ivanovich and Varenka parallel their respective friend sergey has that kind of spiritual quality and that self you know self-involved quality that levin has although he that's his entire personality to the extent that he's characterized whereas levin also has that somewhat kind of earthly quality that he's also a man of the land and so on and such forth Varenka, on the other hand exemplifies kitty's tendencies towards care and in fact she's kind of the one who awakened that within kitty back in part two but that that's kind of the entirety of her character. At what point uh, Levin kind of terms her as holy, she's wholly unapproachable. And I don't know if that was supposed to be a pun, probably not since it was in Russian at the time, but you know, she's, she's kind of like a saint and because of that, she's unapproachable. So she's got that same quality that Kitty obviously displays, but that's the whole of her personality instead of Kitty who, you know, has, has other things going on and they have a sort of parallel romance to a certain degree that, that Kitty and Levin do. But they they can't make it click and you know like it all, for them it all comes up to one moment and when it comes down to it they're just two ships passing in the night because they're too caught up in themselves to really get past that just um, two snipes passing in the night <laughs> just two snipes passing in the march as <laughs> basenka discharges his gun into the ground <laughs> no i think you basically have the gist of it is there i mean tolstoy devotes actually quite a bit of time in this part to their romance i think it's it doesn't like feel like it because it's just such a big book that it's easy to kind of lose track of stuff like that. But it is a good point that they, I think they're supposed to act as parallels. I think you're supposed to compare them. And I think that they represent really good qualities in some ways, but Tolstoy doesn't like, I mean, Tolstoy doesn't really deal in absolutes. It doesn't seem to me. The only, the only constant absolute in Tolstoy's work is that there is no absolute. And so if you are all of one thing, you're actually lacking in something else. Hmm. And so that's why you, there's no way that you can have two people that are, I don't want to, they're like kind of boring characters really because <laughs> they don't have any like nuance to them. They are just the one defining attribute more or less. Yeah. And so that, that can't really be reconciled when they go, when they go out to, to gather mushrooms, it can't be reconciled. <laughs> gather mus mushrooms slash get married. Yeah. You know, a little mushroom, a little marriage. <laughs> But yeah, that's basically why. I mean, that's why Tolstoy had to write himself into the Levin character. <laughs> <laughs> the character is tortured, often wrong, 
doesn't have that many good qualities, but ultimately is is the one who has enough complexity to pull it all back in, and and that he's he's the ability to reflect on his failings, unlike many other characters who perhaps their great failing is that they are a little bit too self assured. He is as well, but he's just more self conscious about it. I think that's what is partially interesting about this book is even though it is not a biographical character. He, there are a few details where I'm like, oh, that's probably embellishment. But there are also, like, he could have made him way cooler, and he didn't. And I think that's kind of a little bit of the point. It, like, it's not a bad thing to fail at things. I and actually, in the sense, I think it's worse to be perfect. Yeah, that's my reading of it, anyways. No, I I totally agree because Levin is in many points are just like sitting back and rolling your eyes at Levin. But it's interesting to me that my my reaction to Levin is less. Sometimes when I'm approaching like when we're approaching works of literature like this, one of the things we do when we talk about characters is like whether or not they're believable. Like, is this is this a character who's written? Sure. Are they fully fleshed out? Do they feel more like a character than just a mouthpiece? And Levin is like that to such a degree that I treat him like a real person, perhaps because it is just an autobiography more than <laughs> I, I would. And we were so far beyond the question of, is this a character who has a realistic internal life into like, you know, his, his failings are just like, so failings that I recognize in people and in myself and things around us, which make it kind of sometimes hard to read because it's like, you know, dealing with, with, feelings that you can't get over and you know are unreasonable but they're just so pervasive i i mean i think we've all felt that at one point or another and and to see that in a character it's difficult to look at because on one hand you want him to to snap out of it on the other hand you if you've ever been through that yourself you kind of know that it's kind of hard to do that and sometimes you do make the wrong decision and do you know inflict some hurt on someone as as levin does oftentimes he's, he does repeatedly he's often not the in the right which is an interesting feature to watch his character go through see that's what i mean though that's why, like it's not that's why i think that's kind of what lisa knapp is getting at in her book that's why mm. tolstoy chose a multi-plot structure for the novel is because it mirrors the search for the answers to these questions and mm. answering a question uh, like uh, like a really serious question like who is my neighbor and that sort of kind of philosophical sense is not something that you just stumble into or you know you get it right on your first try it's it is a serious and sustained series of failures that you kind of need to go through to have a better understanding of your place in the world Mm. think about it yeah which stands in complete opposition to um the alienating uh, experience of going to your local council and, <laughs> and uh, electing local officials where, where there are no neighbors to be found. I think that's really the dig at kind of council. Well, I mean, there's a lot of digs at it, but if you want to continue this strand of thought, you could say, like, what's the point? They, I mean, I don't think they did anything at, at this time period. So I, I'm sure his kind of his, his dig at it is just it's not helping you kind of answer these questions. It's a superficial distraction. Like Anna, for instance, it's all mm. facade. It's nothing. I mean, there's, you know, it's a little bit more complex with Anna because of the social situation and whatnot, but kind of similar and mirroring. But that's the great, wonderful thing that I love about the multi-flawed novel that um, is it, it can't, it doesn't really set you up well for like kind of binary opposition because so many things are so nuanced 
Like every time I go to try and compare something to like Anna, for instance, I have to be like, well, no, it's actually not really quite like that because mm. there's a whole other layer to <laughs> that plot line. So it's fun. We have fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I think this the first time through when I started reading this, it was the the long, long snipe hunt was making me kind of fall back and, and start making cups of tea to get through it. But I, I think you are ultimately right about <laughs> Tolstoy really trying to reflect life in all of its elements, even when it's very boring. Yeah. If you're not, you know, yourself out there hunting snipe. It's not attractive for like most, well, most modern readers, I would say, perhaps. Like, it's a hard book for a reason. And I think also like the experience of reading the book is important. And it's supposed to mirror that. Like, I mean, you're not going to come up with an answer to a question like that by the end of reading the book. But it's a start, I think. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that's my thought on it. We'll get more into it because I mean there's I mean there's so much to discuss in part seven and eight. I can't wait. And we will continue when we get there, but for the for now, uh it has been longer, a lot longer than we usually record. We gotta go. We we got we gotta like leave like right now. Yeah, uh, corporate's yelling at us. <laughs> Our lawyers like making like the you know, dragging his fingers across his throat right across the room. <laughs> um I see a red dot on Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah but um but before we totally wrap up for today matt on a scale of one to yeltsin how drunk are you i probably have like a five or six because this is an eight percent beer it's pretty big and i got to talk about multiple plot lines so i'm happy it's a good day for me that makes sense that makes sense how about you where'd you end up i think i'm at a three but i'm probably still in the come up because i i drank like three beers while you're explaining the idea of the labyrinth of plot lines so we're gonna we're gonna see what that (laughs) yeah thank you (laughs) so we're gonna see where that lands all right all right well um matt what are we reading in our next episode oh i know two you're weeks from now dying in anticipation <laughs> we are reading anna Karenina part seven so as i mentioned plenty more to talk about before we get to the conclusion of this but come along for it we're almost there i promise we're almost at the end <laughs> And then we can do a wrap-up episode because you never truly escape Anna Karenina. No. Never. <laughs> okay. Well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at patreon.com slash tolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.